0: I meant to tell you earlier that at any time, we're going to have a question and answer period at the end of all this in the closing sessions. But if you come up with a question before then that's really burning, like I love somebody came up and to me at halftime at, at break and uh, <laughs> said, uh, you know, I agreed with some of what you said and I strongly disagreed with other parts <laughs> of you said. And I love that because it's not about me being right. It's about just putting it out there and stirring it up and seeing where you stand. So if there's any time that something that that really bothers you, instead of going into a corner and taking my inventory, which you're more than welcome to do, uh, because God knows my sponsor does, Uh, so uh, maybe talk about it here. So if you have a question that comes up, don't hesitate if you're not embarrassed to talk about it, because it is being taped. Uh, and we will hold you up for blackmail but if you have a question ask it we'd be happy to answer also tonight uh, we're going to have our service our little get together we'll call it a service of joy right down there in the chapel and there will be a normal uh, mass being given across the way at 5 o'clock okay so uh, for those of you who wanted to go to mass that will be across the way and at the same time we're going to be down here and we're going to have a little service that I just kind of do and put together and it's fun and it's loving and anybody's welcome you don't even have to believe how's that yeah yeah isn't that great so step three you know a powerful step and it's funny because when we said when we said the third step prayer I heard a couple people say amen and uh, it doesn't say amen in the book in fact amen is until after the seventh step prayer I've heard it said that you could consider from 63 all the way to 76 one solid prayer with the end, amen. And that's pretty good stuff. That's pretty good stuff. And I'll tell you why. It says some powerful things. I'm just gonna. I hate being read to. That's why I'll read to you.
1: <laughs>
0: but no, I just want to read this one part that uh, that uh, it's it, when we're talking about an inventory. It's so important to me. Um, it says next, we launched out on a course of vigorous action, not thought. Vigorous action. You know? And and the first step was a personal house cleaning of which we're going to be talking about four, of which many of us had never attempted. We're not talking about the same thing as confession in the Catholic Church. We're not talking about the same thing. If that had worked for you then, you'd be in better shape. We're talking about a, a house cleaning at depth And uh when it talks about resentment, is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From, from it stems all forms of, and I told you it was in here before, spiritual disease. For we have not only mentally and physically been, been mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we will straighten out mentally and physically. How important is step four? I would say to you, absolutely critical in this person's recovery. Now, what was tough was they said, you know, made a fearless and searching moral inventory. You know what my first question was, whose morals, yours or mine? (laughs) Because if they were by my morals, I really didn't need to take one, thank you very much. But if they were by your morals or the moral standing that was set, the difference between right and wrong, which everybody knows, uh, except a few people who are incapable of knowing. Uh, of course, it was by the morals that were set out there. And I didn't like that information at all because I was not a nice person. And there's a, 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 a set of columns that you do in the big book, and it's laid out wonderfully, and it's very good. I've taken this fourth step that way. I'm a guy that takes a good fourth and fifth step about every five years. Now, I know some people you were perfect and did it all back then. Now, my hair's off to you. I'm, uh, I'm one of those guys. I'm one of those guys that I can't do a perfect step ten and things slip between the cracks. And it's funny, how it seems to be the same things will slip through those cracks. And you get a little pile at the end of three or four or five years, so I go and I clean up the pile. So whether you do or you don't, my recommendation is, especially if you've got some time sober, and if you've been a long time and you're still critical and a grouchy and taking everybody's inventory, my suggestion is you've never taken a good one to begin with. I always run into the, ah, I've been sober 20 years, I haven't taken an inventory. so <laughs> yeah, I can tell. <laughs> And if you want what they have, good. Okay, go for it. I'm not here to judge them. I just don't want that kind of action at 20 years sober. Just don't want that. Uh, So I had to take an inventory. And I don't know about you, in my inventory, it wasn't the big things that you probably should have thought were in there. It was the little nickel and dime compromises in my life before I got sober and after I got sober that were killing me. And we all have that deep, dark secret that nobody's going to and never going to tell this one. I'm going to share mine with you. And you're probably going to think that's nothing. Doesn't matter what you think. It matters what it was doing to my heart and soul. When I was, uh, I don't know, 13, 14, somewhere in there, uh, there was a record out, Little Eva in Motown. Little Eva in the locomotion. Come on, baby, do the locomotion. Remember that? Yeah. Some of you do. Some of you are going, huh, what? But it was a great song. And my buddy Ron and I would play that record over and over on that 45 RPM. We just started. Just played it all day long. And one day I stole the record. I didn't even have a record player. I stole, I bless you, I stole the record. The next day I went over to Ron's and he said, I can't find the record. And I went, huh. Where it's at. Now that may sound silly to you, but that bothered me worse than beating people half to death sober. That bothered me worse than the broken heart I put on my mother's face. For whatever reason, I was never going to tell that to anybody ever. See, in that case, it doesn't I don't care what you think should bother me or not bother me. It's what bothers me. It's a fearless moral inventory of the exact nature of my wrongs. Now, I'm aware in Al-Anon, they shifted a few years ago, and now they put good things in the inventory. That's fine. I don't believe in that. I believe it defeats every purpose of the 4 step, because the fourth step is to level our ego. Other people put themselves on their inventory. I don't recommend that. In step 10, it talks about putting assets. Step four, it doesn't talk about that. And people who are self-involved go, oh, but I think so badly of myself. (laughs) Not nearly of what you should think. Let's get down to the real nitty gritty of what kind of rotten persons we've really become. Because until we do that, we're never going to get better. I don't know about you, but I'd love to justify my actions. Oh, I did this, this, and this, but I did this, this, and this. And I'd never look at what I did. I'd never look at the kind of damage and hell I put people through. So in my inventory, it was my inventory. It wasn't their inventory. And it's very that's very important to me. I've done the four step in many different ways. Uh, my sponsor gave me seven questions 30 years ago that are just very effective. And that's what I use for the people I sponsor because it gets right down to the quick. My well, first question is, what memories in your life cause you pain, guilt, and sadness? Hello, there's a... <laughs> and when you're done, you know what? Those are supposed to be gone. If they're not, then you've missed something in the process. If you have done this inventory, and if you've done five, six, seven, and eight, and still carry it, you've missed something in the process. There is something you're unwilling to let go of. Part of what is was in my inventory is I loved pain and discomfort. It was familiar. I knew how to be at disease. I had no idea how to be at peace. If you brought peace along, I'd bring disease into it. Disease into it. So I'd feel comfortable. How many of us did that once we got sober? You know, things are going well, so we start thinking of things to stir it up. Like, huh? Yeah, well what if? Clancy always used to say, we had a sheriff in Los Angeles, Sheriff Peter Pitches. And he said, uh, somebody told me to turn my checks, my bad checks, over to God. Turn them over to God, God turned them over to Sheriff Peter Pitches.
1: <laughs>
0: and he came and arrested me. You know. <laughs> so again, we got to do action. It can't just be a thought process. And I've got to put the things in there uh, uh, that I've done wrong. And I'm not trying to be the worst because there isn't any worst and there isn't any best. But I couldn't think of anybody I hadn't offended in some way. Just by my presence. Because I was sarcastic, I was arrogant, I was self-involved. I was all that stuff. So my inventory, uh, the first time I I wrote that inventory, it was kind of all what you had done to me. Next time I took that inventory is what was about what I had done to others. And that was very powerful and very healing for me. Because I had always blamed you for all of my troubles. If it wasn't for you, then I wouldn't have done this. If it wasn't for, if it wasn't for those cops harassing me, I wouldn't have fought them. Well, you know what? If I hadn't been in trouble, they wouldn't have had any reason to harass me. Those kind of things. And, and that inventory, especially anger and resentment. My God. Uh, those were part of my being I think that's why a lot of us have trouble letting that go because I used to think if I let that go what's going to happen there's going to be a giant void no it's called peace it's called lack of conflict it isn't a void but I always looked at it negatively I've been that way all my life and I've heard it this week well I've done this all my life what changed it? quit justifying that you've done it all your life here I've done this all my life what do you think? (laughs) want to change it? No, rather not. Thank you. I swells from time to time. Other than that, I'm okay. You know. and, and the nice thing about you, you're more than welcome to keep doing it. Yeah. But if you want to get better, then you decide to do whatever it takes to change that. And I think part of the healing process of this fourth step is to look at it and to be able to change it. 50% of the problem is acknowledging what it is, you know. Really getting down to the nitty-gritty of what it is. The other uh, part of this that's so important is uh, who you take it with. But I'll get into that. I want to talk about anger for a minute. Uh, God, there's so much stuff about anger in that today. The book is very explicit about it. It says we can't afford it. It says it's the dubious luxury of normal men and women. For us, it's poison. (laughs) It's Kind of like reading the warning on the pack of cigarettes, huh? Yeah, for them, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) That's our insanity. that's our insanity. And for years I hung on to that anger. I really did and I'd process it. I'd work through it when it came I'd breathe and I'd work through my anger and I at times I'd vent my anger because that's what was needed. God forbid you were the one I was bidding it on. wasn't and I heard all this stuff in meetings. None of it's found in there, however. None of it. But I heard it in meetings. And I want to share a couple instances when I was working on my anger and resentment. I was in Bowling Green, uh, Kentucky, about three years ago. A guy come up to me and said, Ed, how are you doing? I said, oh, fine, how are you? I said, good. He said, you know, I used to go to meetings with you out in Los Angeles. I said, really? And I said, yeah. I said, I remember the last time I was at a meeting with you. And I said, really, why is that? He said, you knocked the guy out with one punch. <laughs> I'm a spiritual guru. Shh. 15 years sober. I remember I had forgotten about it. Because when you do these steps, you heal. And I'm glad he brought it up because I remember at that time I was working on my anger. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no one was going to upset me. I was going to breathe in, breathe out. I I was going to control my anger. And there was a guy that was sitting in front of me talking during the meeting. And our group culture is no talking during the meeting. Have respect for who's ever out there. Don't go and get coffee. do Go at break. All that. That's, this guy, And I tapped him on the shoulder. I said, excuse me, you're talking so I can't hear. And he said, oh, oh, okay. And at coffee break out in California, all the meetings are an hour and a half, which I prefer. Uh, and you had a half hour and then 10-minute coffee break, and then you finished up with an hour. It was great. And at the coffee break, he stood up and he turned around and said, don't you ever touch me. And I said, sir, you don't understand. I was just trying to help you. You see, in this meeting, we don't talk during the break. And little Alice, God bless her, knew me a lot better than I did. Come over and put both hands on my chest said, big head, sit down. Big head, sit down. I said, oh, honey, don't worry about me. We're just talking. It's just fine. And Alice went okay. Went <laughs> sat down, and we're talking again. Here's Alice again. Come back five minutes later. Big Ed sat down, and I said, "Oh no, don't worry. I'm in control here. This is you know." And I turned around. And the guy said, "Don't you ever?" And before I know it, pop, and he's going over four rows of chairs. And my first thought is, how am I going to explain this to my sponsor? <laughs> that was my first thought. and I know what to do when you've been bad I ran right around and woke him up and made amends immediately you know. and I sponsored him for the next five years (laughs) he said he'd been around AA for some time but nobody had ever gotten his attention before (laughs) seems I did now the reason I tell you that and funny but you know what there's no reason to ever touch anybody physically in an AA meeting and that had always been my safe place here And I'm the one that violated it. With the exception of that guy, the first few months I was sober. And there have been some people I had to physically take care of that were going to hurt themselves or somebody else in a meeting. That's the only exception when there's a lot of illness and things need to be taken care of. But it just broke my heart that I did that. Shortly after that, I'm uh, going out to the valley. I was living in California. I was going out to the valley to talk. And this guy in this Audi cuts me off and he's, tells me I'm number one, (laughs) and uh, then he slams on the brakes a couple times, and then he tells me I'm number one again, and then he does this, pull over, I thought, excellent, (laughs) there is a God,
1: excellent,
0: (laughs) and my rule is, if he gets out of the car, his butt's mine, (laughs) Because he's coming at me. That's the rules in California. He got out of the car and I thought, oh good. I unreeled out of that car, his eyes got this big, and I grabbed him by his collar and his crotch and I threw him over his car. And I thought, Ed, you're on your way to give a spiritual talk. This is probably easy. So I went around and I picked him up and I brushed him off, put him back in his car, and started to make amends immediately. You know, I'm a member of a 12-step group, but what we do, to, his eyes got this big of And I'm sitting there in the middle of the freeway going, I'm 15 years sober. What's wrong with this picture? Shortly after that, I was at work. I had just gotten this new job. And I was running this agency, and a, a guy came in. He'd uh, His girlfriend had left a deposit on a piece of merchandise she wanted to purchase and I guess the previous management there they had some difficulties with them. and she called me up and said I want my deposit back and I looked at what she ordered and I thought man that's an excellent piece of merchandise I'd love to have it back in inventory so I said sure come on I'll, I'll give you I'm sorry about whatever happened before we'll give you a check and she came in she came in with her boyfriend who was muscle bound and I found out later he was a stuntman and a lion tamer <laughs> They hadn't run into this lion before and um He started getting real smart with me, and he had nothing to do with the deal. She seemed to be pleasant. I had her sign that she had gotten the check, and I said, Thank you very much. I'm sorry I didn't work out. And he said to me, "Uh, uh, What are you? Some kind of, and called me about every foul name he could. And I had a coffee cup in my hand, and I crushed it. And I went for him. And I'm running down Burbank Boulevard. Full steam, and this kid could run, man. He could. This guy could run, because I couldn't catch him. And here comes my boss, driving by this way.
1: <laughs> Oops.
0: And I stopped, and I caught my breath, and I went back to work, and I went in. And those people where I'd been for three months that loved and respected me and trusted me could not even look me in the eye. Dad saw a rage in me that just terrified them. And that's the day I decided <clears throat> the book is correct. I cannot afford anger and resentment, justified or unjustified. I can't. Now, those are the obvious ones. The other ones I got to ask is how to come out with my loved ones, with my children, how to come out with my co workers, how to come out with the people I sponsor. Because it was coming out some way. Because until it's surrendered, it doesn't go away. And I found out for me that surrendering it, it indeed goes away. That I don't have to control it. I don't have to work on it. I don't have to process it. I have to do what it says in the book. God save me from being angry. And leave it there. And leave it there. How well does that work? It got to the point in my life where you aren't going to believe this because I find it hard to believe. I could not remember the names of the guys who killed my father not remember their names. Now that's a lifetime of guaranteed resentment and anger. Nobody would be mad at me for that. Trouble is, it was killing me and I really got to the point where I could not remember. Somebody asked me and I couldn't recall one name. That's the kind of healing that's available here. Not there, not in the future, not tomorrow, but right now. If you're willing to put it down, and here they say put it on paper. Look for it really is. And what I missed in my inventories, I think, was the depth of my anger. The depth of my anger. I really didn't know. If you'd asked me, I thought I was doing fine. I thought, oh, I'd, I'd uh, do a little gossip every now and then, barbed with hostility. It's called character assassination. I was just helping you so you wouldn't get involved. So I had to put that stuff in my inventory, and uh, I had to put that down, and I really had to be willing to admit to God, to myself, and to another human being the exact nature of my wrongs. Now, it's funny, because fifth steps are taken all over this country, and there's directions on how to listen to a fifth step right in the 12 and 12, and most people don't get it. When I was going into seminary, I was there, and I was trying to behave myself. I I was not trying to... Even though I live Alcoholics Anonymous and everything I do, I was just trying to be one of the group. And we're sitting there and they brought in a priest to talk to us about a fifth step. And I'm being, I'm being a good little pastor. I'm just sitting there. And he says, you know, when you listen to a fourth step, you never say anything. You just let them, you know, leave their burden with you, but you never interfere. And I went, like, He said, yes. I said, where would you get that information? He said, oh, I've been sober 18 years. I said, yeah, I've been sober 25. Where would you get that information? Well, uh, I learned that in AA. I said, oh, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. And he said, well, I think I did. And I said, well, you might want to read the 12 and 12. Because in the 12 and 12, it says that we counsel, direct, and advise. Counsel, direct, and advise. When we listen to a four step, you know why that was so personal to me? First four step I ever did was with Father Dan. He's a wonderful guy and takes fifth steps with thousands of guys, hundreds of guys, hundreds of guys, maybe thousands, because he's been doing it 30 years I've known him, 35 years I've known him. But I sat there and I took that fifth step, and Father Dan would pat his Bible and he'd listen. And, you know. and I'd left there, and the next day I was creating a new four step, and I thought, what's that about? God, I just did that. And here I am doing the same crap. I didn't get any counsel, direction, or advice. When I got my sponsor, he said, you're going to take your inventory with me. He said, and if you don't trust me enough to do your inventory, then you need to get another sponsor because we're talking about your life. And come on in, and he said, uh, you're going to do it with me. Well, I thought, well, what if you get drunk? And he said, well, what if a priest gets drunk? Oh, okay. And uh, so I took my inventory with him, and I'll tell you what I found. That when the the old habits would start appearing, he could bring them up to me. Ed, uh, how many hours did you work last week? Forty? How many did you put on your time card? Forty-three. Didn't we talk about that in your inventory, Ed? The minute you start stealing a little bit, doesn't go into every area of your life, and... Oh yeah, thanks. See that's what I needed. I needed to be counseled, direct, and advised and and be with somebody who could hold me accountable. Now I know that's not fashionable for a lot of people. They just don't want to be held accountable. I needed to be because I was my own worst enemy, even when I thought I was doing great. I needed someone to hold me accountable and give me a new perspective. And in sponsorship, what I did is supplement my judgment, their judgment for mine, because my best judgment kept me sick for years, even in AA. If you remember, I was two and a half years sober before I got a sponsor, and I'd been through hell with my father being murdered and all that, and I was stark raving sober. I mean, I was stark raving sober, and that's the time when I really had those suicidal depressions where I just wanted it to end. I couldn't take the pain of living anymore. So when I share with you about these steps and call them life and death, that's what they were to me. You know, uh, uh, drinking never occurred to me, but hitting a bridge abutment, turning on the gas, just going to sleep, no dramatics, oh, that sounded attractive. And through doing a fourth and fifth, I got to take that option off the table too. You know? But if I'd never told anybody about it, it would still be on the table. Four and five are cleansing. That's where we get in there and we scrub our insides out. I call it scraping of the soul. And man, you want it good. And if there's any secrets you kept, go back and tell them. Because we are indeed as sick as our secrets. And I always, get, it's always funny to me when, when people say, oh, I don't want to do a fourth and fifth. I've been so bad. I said, yeah, you're probably one of the worst. And at first I go, yeah, probably. I said, no, that's a joke. That's a joke. There are no original sins. They've all been done before. (laughs) Probably a lot better than we did them, you know. And a lot more times. And uh, part of what I had to put on my inventory is my hate for me. I hated every breath I took. I felt dirty where soap don't get. And I didn't like me at all. And those of you who liked me, I thought, were just (laughs) misunderstanding who I really was. What I learned through that inventory is I am a collector of ones, and I knew every negative thing there was about me. And that was up front in my mind. And step four, step five, six, and seven is where I started eliminating the ones in my life. For those of you who weren't here last night, the ones are simply... I, I. uh, the analogy I come up with is I could walk into a room of 300 people, 299 could turn around to me and say, "Ed, you're the greatest," and one could go, jerk, and I'd remember the one. Forget all the wonderfulness that was in that room. I'd remember the loser, and that'd be my life. Well, the inventory is the, is the time where I started losing that bag of ones, and it helped me breathe unhindered. You ever noticed alcoholics and? and uh, People who love alcoholics are very shallow breathers. Seriously, do you ever notice that? We had a wonderful meditation this morning where we were doing some breathing exercises, and I stumbled that onto that. Uh, God showed me that through a friend of mine, Clint H. He was talking, and he was telling his story one day, and he just said it this quick, kind of like a throwaway line. He said, "And when my mother died when I was nine years old, I stopped breathing deeply." I went, "Wow." When when I stopped breathing deeply, I don't ever remember breathing deeply. It was very shallow. And, you know, I was real easy to upset, and I was I could explode, snap like that. And I started breathing deeply. Well, when you got a bag full of ones, you breathe shallow because it's a heavy load. And the less the load, the more you can breathe. It's like kind of like being congested. You got a bad cold. You can't take a deep breath, and the more it heals, the better you can breathe in so I would highly recommend to you whether you've been here a day or you've been here 40 years if you're not practicing deep breathing number one it is the fuel that makes your body operate It what, what keeps you on earth breathe deeply every chance you get now if you're anxiety prone do it slowly please or you'll have an anxiety attack okay But breathing deeply, slowly and deeply fuels our bodies, our hearts, our minds, and yes, indeed, our emotions. I realize my ones created my chemical imbalances. My ones, the key word is chemical imbalance. Well, you know what? I can create a chemical imbalance with you at any given moment. ever been startled? Somebody run up behind you or just come up and you're startled? What happens to your body? (laughs) Chemical imbalance. I can give you a visual image. I, I do it a lot of times and I just have you close your eyes and I have you envision a giant green seven foot dill pickle. The sourest dill pickle you could ever imagine. And I have you walk up and I have you take a great big bite out of that sour green dill pickle and the juice is just running down your face. And those who are not on medication, I'm not trying to be smart, it's true, because that's what medication for, is to mask, uh, start salivating and tasting it, and they're licking their lips. And I say, by my input, I just created a chemical imbalance in you just by telling you a little story. Imagine the stories we tell us day and night. Imagine if it's all a negative input. Imagine if it's all negative energy. Imagine if it's all self-hate and self-doubt. Of course we're going to be chemically imbalanced. Now imagine if you start putting, empty this out with four and five, make some adjustments in six and seven, and start putting good in. The imbalance changes, I promise you. I haven't had a depression in 25 years. And they told me when I got sober, I could never live without some sort of medication. And for the way I was at that particular time, they were absolutely right. Because of all I knew to learn, I created it. Selfishness, self-centeredness is the root of all of my troubles. And I through four and five, I learned a way to get out of that negative imaging because I didn't need it anymore. And you taught me a way to put in some positive things like helping other people and watching their life change and wonderful things happen. So four and five are, are powerful. And I, I uh, uh, when I do four and five, I really take a minute before I'm done. And I ask, is that it? Is that all there is? Am I stealing anything at work? Paper clips, Stuff I've just rationalized away. Time, packing the time card. Am I being emotionally dishonest with my loved one? Oh, let's not bring up porno on the Internet. My God, that's an outside issue. No, it's a compulsive issue. And that's what we're talking about. Whatever area of your life, you're not working this program. It's going to cost you everything you ever loved eventually. You know, where am I being wrong? What am I doing wrong? Am I thinking ill of people way too often? And for me, any time is way too often. I challenge you the minute you think. I remember, Chuck, I might have shared this with you last night. I'm not sure, but Chuck C. When they talked, when I, when I talked, I didn't know how to pray at all, and Chuck was just amazing. And I went up to Chuck one time and I said, Chuck, how do you pray? And he said, Ed, your every thought's a prayer. And I did a little inventory about what I was thinking and went, "Uh
1: uh-oh.
0: It was not good news that every thought was a prayer to me. It was just not good news at all. And then I asked myself a simple question. Well, if it's crap, why am I thinking it? Why don't I replace it with a good thought? And really try to make my every thought a prayer. That's been my goal from that day to this. I'm better at it than I've ever been in my life. I'm certainly nowhere close to having it mastered. But I'm telling you what, most of my life, I would say 85% to 90% of my day is praying unceasingly because my every thought is a prayer. I want God to approve of everything that goes through this little mind. And if He doesn't, I'm trashing it. There's a brother, Lawrence, was a monk a number of years ago. And Brother Lawrence was just an amazing guy. Let me tell you the story. I love this story. I love uh, how God talks to me in life. I travel a lot. I travel about every weekend. And I've got a terrible habit. I take the book that I'm reading that's really feeding me spiritually, and I take it with me on the plane, and I put it in the back of the seat in front of me, and I forget it every time. (laughs) So when I leave the plane and realize I've got to catch the other one, I can't go back, I say a little prayer that that book be a blessing to whoever finds it. And they get the same blessing or more than what I've been getting out of it. Last January, New Year's, New Year's, it was January 1st, I was flying back from Shreveport, and I thought, man, i got nothing to read. I said, God, I need a little book. So I looked in the back, and I pulled out a book. And it was called Living in the Presence of God. And it was sayings of a guy named Brother Lawrence, it's this monk I'm talking to you about, And you know, for the last 15 years, I've really tried to look at ways to pray, effective ways to pray. And man, we can get wordy and we can do all this. And Brother Lawrence in that little book says, uh, you know, uh, I do the formal prayers they ask as a monk, but I have no other formal prayers. He said, I guess my prayer would be, each day I say, God, let me do nothing that offends you. I thought, God, how simple how simple and that's my prayer today and I went home and I just moved into this house and on the kitchen table was a tape of Chuck C I thought that's odd I haven't had that tape out for years I've got every talk he's ever given I haven't had that tape out for years And so on my kitchen table I went out in the car and I put the tape in and he's talking about Brother Lawrence I'd never heard him talk about Brother Lawrence before That's the way my God works in my life. And it's simply, I pray that I do nothing that offends you today. Boy, that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? I pray that I do nothing that offends you, and I added today. Because it is a day at a time. But with four and five in that inventory, I had to put my sense of uh, anger at God. Why would you rip people out of my life? Why would you give people cancer? Why would you do all this crap? Why do you let children starve in Africa? And I learned that God isn't letting people starve in Africa. We are. He's given us more than enough. We're too busy upping our cell phone minutes and getting that flat screen TV. Thank you very much. Don't blame God anymore. He weeps at our selfishness. And I blamed Him for years. You know, I found that out at my father's funeral. I had a terrible struggle with what was God's will and what wasn't. And the priest said, you know, a lot of people would say Clifford's death is God's will. He said, I don't believe that for a minute. He said, I believe God created human beings and gave us all a free will. Some of those human beings chose to do this act. Bless you. And now it's God's will. It was like the weight of the world fell off my shoulders. I came to believe from that day to this, if it isn't good, it isn't God. Period. And I can back it up in that other book. But isn't that amazing? You know, If it isn't good, it isn't God. I had to put all that stuff in that inventory so I could find out. If I don't get rid of the old information, there's no room for new information. And God, I wanted to be whole. I could see people being functioning parts of this world. And I just looked at them in awe. And I thought, God, that's what I want. But I had to put down that I called God a lot of names that I uh, hunted His people down and harmed them in every way I knew how to do. But I also come to believe and come to read that uh, He forgives ignorance and unbelief. Boy, thank you. And He also says, what better than to save one of the worst sinners of them all? What better example to those around me? So I didn't have to hate me anymore. I didn't have to think I was the worst thing that ever walked on this earth, that I was morally corrupt, you know, years ago, I shared this story with Doug the other day. Years ago, I used to have a lot of judgments about a lot of people like we still do. I'm sure still there's still some there. I'm trying to get rid of them the best I can when they come up. But uh, there was a, uh, I have permission to tell this story, but there was a wide receiver for the Los Angeles Rams named Lance Renssel. Lance was a wide receiver making big money. Married to Joey Heatherton, who was a gorgeous blonde. She was just beautiful, an actress. And Lance got arrested for uh, exposing himself to little girls on the street corner. And man, there was big trouble. Bad press, almost lost everything. He said, I'm going into treatment, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Six months later, guess what? He did it again. And he lost his career, he lost his wife, he lost everything and part of his sentence was to do community service. So I went down to Clancy's office one day and there's Lance in there doing community service. And I walk in and Clancy says, this is a guy I sponsor Ed, he's a recovering alcoholic. And Lance said, oh, hi, how are you? And I said, fine, good to see you. And Clancy stepped out of the office for a minute and Lance turned to me and said, you know, I have a problem exposing myself to children. And I said, I don't really know a lot about that. He said, oh, I thought you said you were alcoholic. And I said, yeah. He said, yeah, you know nothing about having a compulsion that if you do it, it'll cost you everything you've ever loved, and you do it anyway. You wouldn't know anything about that, would you? And I made amends right there. How many thought of our addiction and compulsive being weak-willed? Why don't you get a life? Why don't you get some help? What's wrong with you? Same thing that's wrong with me. The exact same thing that's wrong with me what a healing moment I have friends who were sexual offenders for a long time and they don't offend one day at a time and haven't for some time because their recovery is one day at a time and it's powerful all the hate I had for other people I had to put in that inventory had to put it in there because if I didn't bad things were going to happen and uh, I probably, uh, thank you. And I, I bet if I didn't put him in the inventory, bad things were going to happen. And I, uh, the worst thing is that I would have kept living the way I was living. See, dying didn't scare me. It was a wish. Living terrified me, sober. Because I'd been around and I'd been marching in the footsteps, I thought, of everybody else. Yet there was a madness that was in me. And I also need to tell you that doing four, five, six, and six and seven, and eight, the way we're, the madness is gone from me anymore, and it hasn't returned. I know it can return if I stop doing the very things I'm sharing with you today, putting it first and foremost in my life. You know, So getting somebody who knows how to do a fifth step is very important. Uh, I've had people fly in around the country, just do a fifth step and go back home. And that's cool, too, because in their area, they don't do it with sponsors. And I'm not saying that's the only way to do it. I'm saying that was the most effective way for me. And I tell them when we sat down, I said, about halfway through this, you're going to be mad as hell at me. Because I'm going to step right on your toes. I've got to change the way you think about some things or you're going to die. they said, oh, I would never get mad. (laughs) (laughs) At the end, there's a tremendous healing that takes place. Because one of the things that happened in my fourth and fifth is things that I was absolutely convinced of were killing me. And I had to look at them differently. Number one, you were all against me. No, you were against my actions. Big difference. There was a lot of people that were for me, just couldn't put up with my behavior. Big difference. I needed to hear that truth. And I heard that in inventory. A lot of people didn't like me because I was very unlikable. Needed to hear that, too. It wasn't unfortunate. It wasn't I was misunderstood. It's that I was really understood. They knew what kind of jerk they were dealing with and didn't like it. Through that inventory, I have given the world complete permission not to like me at all, and it doesn't chase my boat anymore. I mean it. If you didn't like me, it'd kill me. It'd kill me. Why? 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 doesn't matter why. I give you the right not to like me because you know what? There's some people that just rub me the wrong way. <laughs> and I, I demand that right, so i got to give you that right. And since I've given you that right, it no longer bothers me anymore. My sponsor said to me one time, said, Ed, if you look good to jerks, that should tell you something. <laughs> I'd never heard that before. I like that. And I still do. There are a lot of people, I don't want them to like what I have to say. Because in order for them to like it, I'd have to be of like mind. And I've watched them die for years. And I watched me die for years until I found out the answer still the answer. It's the application that was missing. The answer still the answer. It's just the application that was missing. How are we doing on time? five minutes? I still got to do step six well then I did step six, thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> step six is powerful I always get them mixed up in we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character this little paragraph, this little first paragraph says uh, this is the step that separates the men from the boys or the women from the girls <clears throat> or the adults from the children, however you want to look at it. And boy, it's true. It's absolutely true in my case because they're talking about the things that caused my chemical imbalance. They talk about uh, false pride or pride. I still hear that in meetings. I hear people in meetings say, My meeting's the best meeting in the world. Really? How long did it take you to get to all those meetings to make that decision? It's just ego and pride. It's just ego and pride. Oh, my group's the best group. I'm the one that knows the only way to... (laughs) Sorry. That's step six. Doesn't need to be here. This isn't a competition. This is an inclusive ride. Come along. You know? And uh, greed, my God, greed! What do you do with that? You stop being greedy. How do you do that? You stop. You start giving, and stop keeping track of what you're giving. When I gave you anything, I would usually remind you of it from time to time. And when I was in need, wonder just where the hell you were at, not helping me. And I started giving and I don't keep track and I haven't had that thought in ages. You owe me nothing. I'm in of need of nothing, except what I create in my own mind through my own energy. I'm in need of nothing, unless I wanna be. Procrastination. Let's talk about that next hour. No, I, but isn't it true? Been a true procrastination. Let's put off talking about that till later. What is it in your life that you know if you did would make you feel better that you haven't done? For me, and this is going to sound corny, being a macho man, but if my home gets out of order, now I need to tell you I'm a reformed pig. Uh, well, no, I'm not saying that in a mean way, I'm saying that in a life experience way. Mom had seven kids. She was gone all day. Our house was a pigsty. And I thought, that's the way you lived. And then I learned, no, you don't have to live that way. And I'm not a perfectionist where I have to have everything in order. Like when I came in, my water was lined up in a perfect triangle, Joanne. But I... I don't judge. I just barely report. And, uh... (laughs) But now if my house I was given a new house I'll tell you this story in December well we need two stories with that about four years ago I was with the Methodist Church and I absolutely loved it it was a time in my life when things were everything was just going absolutely exquisite and uh, two things happened I'll just tell you about one of them the church came to me and at that time I spoke in AA once a month When I went into the ministry at 23 years sober, I said, I would be happy to do your ministry and I'll go get that 230 hours of college credit and that graduate, I'll do all that. But I need to be able to go talk in AA at least once a month out of gratitude for what they've given me because if it wasn't for them, you wouldn't have me the other three to four Sundays a month. And that was fine for eight years. Then we got in a new bishop. And the new bishop said, "Why should you have a Sunday a month off? None of my other pastors do make a choice. You can either be a pastor at the United Methodist Church or you can go talk to your AA friends. And it was no-brainer in one, but there was a problem. I realized that the 299s are a lot of wonderful people. My church out of the 1200, there were three groups of 299, and I absolutely loved them. and my heart was broken. but I'm here, so it's obvious the choice I made. And um, as a result of that, I started my own church, and it's been a struggle. I realize why people get involved with denomination, It's called a, a vein of money that runs through and keeps you going. When you're struggling to thank God for it, I just don't have that. And I spent everything I had trying to keep this little church going. I had to file bankruptcy. And uh, I'm not complaining about that. It was my choice, whether it be right or wrong, let God be the judge. It was what I felt I needed to do at the time. And then uh, last December, I'm sitting there, and uh, I'd been holding on to this house I bought in '92. And I uh, I don't know about the utility bills up here, but this is an old house, old house built in the 1800s. And my utility bills for November and December were $900, and the payment was $800 a month. So when you're not working, puts a little crimp. Or you're working every day, but you're just not getting a check in. Makes it tough. Uh, so I decided, I said, God, I, 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 maybe I made a mistake. You're holding on to this house. I'm sure sorry. And I said, I'll give it to you, and you do whatever you want. I met with the realtor, and I owed exactly what was worth on it, so they just cashed me out. And I, I didn't know where I was going, but I knew it was going to be all right. I'd started a job at uh, Tyson's as a part-time chaplain where I'm at today. I've been there just about a year. And this nurse walked by me one day named Mary, and Mary said, Ed, are you looking for a house? And I said, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd yeah. She said, well, we have one for sale out in the country. She said, it's just wonderful. And I said, how much is it? And she told me, and I went, phew. And I said, you know, I had to file bankruptcy a couple years back, and cash-wise, I'm just not making it. Uh, thank God I got this job. Now I can at least eat. That's good. I? But I can't do that. And she said, oh, okay. And about two weeks later, she called me up and said, Ed, um, why don't you come look at the house because it's winter. Real estate doesn't move down there in the winter months, really. It's March, it picks up. says, we'll rent it to you for, you know, enough for you to get by, and that way the house isn't abandoned, and you'll be, I thought, good. And I went and looked at it. And you may have had this, but I have never had a sense of home before. And the minute I walked in the door, I was like, I'm home. And I just backed up and said, whoa, whoa, can't go there. Temporary situation, one day at a time, and I'm real grateful for it. About a week later, Mary comes to me and her husband Ray and said, You know, Ed, we'd help you if we could, but we really feel God wants you to have this house, so we're going to pray for a financial blessing. And when someone else initiates it, I feel comfortable joining them in prayer. It's not my will, it's theirs. So I started saying some prayers for that. About two weeks later, I'm doing a retreat that I do three four times a year down in my home area, and there's a gal there that's been there for 12 years. Uh, coming for 12 years and she said, to Ed, uh, where are you living? And I told her about the little place. She said, why don't you buy it? And I said, well, I, I just don't have the wherewithal to do that. And she said, well, you know, I'm in real estate and I speculate. You mind if I come and look at it? I said, no, because they were nice people and they needed to move this house because they had taken a loan out against, you know, put it on this one. They got to sell this one and that. And I really wanted them to, to be happy and stay in their new home. And so. Uh, She came over, walked through the house. That was Sunday on Tuesday night. She called me and she said, Ed, I just wanted you to know I bought the house. And I said, well, good, congratulations. It's a great little house, and I know you'll like it. She said, no, 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 it's for you. And I said, well, no, I can't afford that. She said, Ed, what kind of payment can you afford? And I said, nowhere near what you need. I, I just can't. She said, Ed, that isn't what I ask you. What kind of payment can you afford? And I said, and I told her, and she said, okay, it's your house. We'll do a land contract, and that's your payment. And I've been living there ever since. Now, there would have been a time before a good four, five, and six where I would have never believed a story like that. Now I'm living them. Is it become I'm special? Because I'm special? It's because what we've been given here is the answer to everything we've been looking for. What you came here looking for, you're looking with. See you in a little while.
1: Yeah